Good morning, my name is Magdiel. A scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, from the Common English Bible. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day, thank you for this morning. I pray that our hearts and minds will be open as we read this passage and that you can speak into our life. In your name we pray, amen. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples the human while must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and the legal experts, and be killed, and then after three days rise from the dead. He said this plainly, but Peter took hold of Jesus and scolded him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly correct Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. What would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the human one will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Thank you for reading the scripture for today. And again, that was Mark 8, 31 through 38 in the Common English Bible Version, and we are in the second week of Lent. Lent, once again, is the season that the church uh, observes of the 40, uh, 40 days and six Sundays leading up to Easter, and where um, Lent is traditionally a time of repentance, where the church uh, focuses on the sacrifice and the walk of Jesus Christ towards uh, the cross, and we um, take on a posture of repentance, um, sometimes giving up things, sometimes fasting from things. Uh, we are in the second week, and uh, today's sermon I've entitled A Commitment to Life, A Commitment to Life, and this passage is about Christian commitment, commitment to Christ, and uh, many, many look at this passage and say it's the ultimate uh, passage about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Christ or the cost of discipleship. What is the cost of following Jesus Christ? And, um, you know, the Sims, I'm a Sim, my last name is Sim. The Sims are historically known for being very competitive people. And uh, I'm the type of competitive person that I don't like to overtly you know, show that I'm competitive, but inside I'm competitive. So you might not know that I'm competing with you, but I probably am competing. And I like to compete in everything, whether it's driving or, you know, beating my wife Janice home from grandma's house if we're driving two cars or, you know, anything I'll, I'll compete in. And um, I noticed that, you know, I have two kids, of my daughter Cami and my son Isaiah, that both of them have that competitive streak in them. 
And it's interesting when you see characters, uh, uh, characteristics in your children that are like you, it kind of puts a mirror to that. Oh, that's kind of, ooh, they're really competitive. Where did they get that from? And, you know, my wife and I joke about, that's your son. That's your daughter. No, that's your daughter. That's, you know, that's you right there. And uh, my daughter, Cami, is extremely, extremely competitive. Like, I don't know where she got it, but she wants to win. And so I remember last year, she, uh, we had her in a, a soccer team. And it's, you know, at that age, um, six years old, it's co-ed. So there's boys and girls. And Cami, uh, she hasn't learned, like, how to control or how to handle the emotions that come up with her competitiveness or when she doesn't get something right or when she doesn't win, you know, the frustration that comes up in her. But uh, she would just break down and cry if she didn't get a drill right or someone dribbled the ball to the other line quicker than her. She would just break down and be, come running to me and sit on the sidelines and cry and cry and cry. And as a parent, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm kind of like, oh, you're being overtly competitive. You know, you're supposed to hide that kind of stuff. Don't let people, never let people know that you're sweating. Um, and so I'd say, Cammy, no, you don't quit. You know, you don't quit just because you get something wrong or because you, you lose or you don't cry because you lose. You push forward, pick yourself you know, pick yourself up off the ground and try again. It's not just about winning. It's about getting better. This is practice, practice. Or the other, uh, one time we was hanging out with my, my parents um, and my brother and my niece and nephew and all of us were hanging out as a family in a, in a, a Froyo place and we were playing Uno and uh, my family, for the first time, got insight into Cammy's competitiveness because she was, you know, when she was winning in Uno and, you know, putting down the draw twos and draw fours, she was like laughing and happy and, you know, talking trash. But then when she started losing, she just literally started crying and everyone was like, oh, it's okay. Um, and, and my mom was like, oh, let her win, let her win. And I'm like, no, like pour it on. She's got to learn. Uh, she's got to learn. And so, um, but competitive, competitiveness, what is that thing that makes us want to win? What is that thing that drives us to compete and be number one? Right? I, I believe the United States you know, we are guilty, just probably more than any country in the world, of exceptionalism. Exceptionalism meaning we are the best, we are the only, we are the first, we are the best democracy. Example of democracy in the whole world, we have to be a light to show all the world the success of capitalism and democracy and freedom, the experiment of America. We're the best at all sports. Right? Even though, you know, there are other countries that play football or baseball, the championship, the pro championship um, things like baseball or like basketball, whenever the Lakers win the championship or whoever won the championship in baseball last time, was it the Dodgers? The Dodgers lead win the championship. What, what, what do we say? 
The LA Dodgers are the world champions. No, they're, cha they're the best pro team in America, right? Where, where do we get off saying we are world champions? The LA Lakers are the world champions. What about the rest of the world who plays baseball and basketball? But we have this, and you know, I've heard people say that at the Olympics, right? Americans are the most obnoxious, annoying crowd, right? Because we're always like, USA, 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 everywhere we go, USA, USA, we're number one, we're winners, we're the best. And even leaders and presidents and senators and Congress people say, we are the best, we are the most powerful nation in the world, right? The President of the United States is the greatest leader of the free world, the most powerful person in the free world. Everything that we say about America is a superlative, right? Best, 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 number one. And so in that type of mentality, what happens if you lose? Is there space for losers? Is there space for not number one? Is there space for failure? Is there space for rejection? And I think in the church, in the American church, sometimes we've sold out the gospel for this, this idolatry of exceptionalism. Like everything is about victory. Everything is about the best. And so, even in our faith, it's been co-opted by the sense of this need to be number one and need to be the best. And when you read Jesus' words here, it's completely the opposite, right? And I believe this is what Peter has such a hard time accepting what Jesus is saying, that he must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Peter rebukes Jesus in our passage, right? And the word, the word rebuke is a very strong, he condemns Jesus, right? He condemns Jesus. Just like, you know, when I was a kid, I talked back to teachers all the time because I always thought I was right. You know, and I'd correct teachers, I'd raise my hand. Actually, my teachers would get so annoyed with me, right? That's annoying. And now that when Isaiah does it, I'm like, I get annoyed when he talks back to me or corrects me and it does the know-it-all thing. And now I understand, like, oh my gosh, that's so annoying. But what Peter does is even more than just correcting Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, I condemn you. I rebuke you. You're wrong. Don't talk like that. Don't say those kind of things. That's not what the Messiah is about. And Jesus, on the flip side, equally condemns Peter with one of the strongest rebukes in Scripture. Get behind me, Satan. If you think that, you have nothing to do with me. Get behind me, Satan. But what is Peter having such a hard time accepting in Jesus' words and statements about losing your life to gain it? When we look in context at chapter 8, Previously, uh, preceding our passage today, um, it's the very, chapter 8 is the very center of Mark. And in the central part of Mark, we see a very significant moment. 
And the significant moment is at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet, this or that. And then Jesus says, turns to the disciples and says, who do you say I am? And Peter, in a grand moment, says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. He got the answer right. He's like beaming now because Jesus is like, yes. Uh, he, told, he tells him not to tell anyone, but Peter got the answer right. Jesus is the Messiah. What has happened? Jesus has just fed the 5,000, right? The miracle of the 5,000. Jesus has just healed a blind man. And the people are coming to him left and right and getting healed and receiving blessings from Jesus through miracles and teaching. And Peter finally, or Peter comes and has that moment, raises his hand in the class. I know the answer. The answer is, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But do the disciples really understand what being the Messiah was? Even though they recognize Jesus as Messiah, do they fully understand what the identity of the Messiah is, what the identity, what this meant? And I think this is why in verse 31, then Jesus began to teach his disciples, right? Now that you have said you are the Christ, let me tell you what the implications of Christ are. The Christ is this, I'm here to save the world, right? I'm here to, for the forgiveness of sins, to love the people here, and bring them good news and new life. But I think what the disciples had in mind is what often we as Christians mistake for the gospel, that it's about winning, That's the, that it's about victory, 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 victory. But maybe this is some sort of, I don't know what they envision, a military victory to overthrow the oppressive Romans or, some sort of, you know, they're going to be in Jesus's entourage now. Maybe they're poor wanderers right now, but they're going to gain popularity and power and influence, and they're going to roll in with Jesus. We're the Jesus people. We're rolling in, and we're going to be, right? He's going to be top 10 celebrities in Israel. But Jesus flips the script and says the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and be killed, and then after three days, rise from the dead. And he said this very plainly to them, right? Here's the bottom line. Jesus speaks plainly. I'm gonna suffer, be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. That's my journey. That's my destiny. Right? So much for the victory tour, right? So much for the, the King of the Jews, the great Messiah, the Christ, coming in glory. Really, 
right? It's like, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna be rejected, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna die and rise. This is the journey of the Messiah. Suffer, die, rise. Suffer, die, rise. And he goes on further, and for you, if any of you want to come after me, if any one of you want to be called my follower, if any of you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So Jesus' call to those who would follow him are take up your cross. Just as I'm going to die, take up your cross. Or deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Because I am going to suffer, die, and rise. And people would have known the symbolism of the cross, right? When Jesus says, take up your cross, people know that. Like the Roman cross was one of the most feared symbols of those times because it was one of the most um, painful ways to be executed. It's how the Romans intimidated all of the country, all of the nations, all of the peoples that they dominated over, right? By killing people on the cross and, and putting that up for all to see. Any people who come against the Roman Empire, this is your fate. So people feared the shadow of the cross. People feared what the cross represented. And for Jesus to say, take up your cross, oh my goodness. So following Jesus isn't this road to glory. Following Jesus doesn't come with all of these fringe benefits that I thought. Following Jesus means the cross. Jesus says, I will suffer, I will die, I will rise. This is a paradigm shift. This is not what his disciples expected. And on top of that, as I suffer, die, and rise, you need to follow me into that life of Denying yourself, taking up your cross to follow me. <laughs> this is not a happy story, it seems like. It's going to be a hard road to follow me. And I think this is why Peter says, no. No, this is not what we signed up for. This is not who you are. You're, you're our teacher. You're our Messiah. You, we followed you because we, we trust that you're here to save us. We trust that you're going to bring a revolution. We trust that you're going to use your power to change the world, to change Jerusalem, right? To lead a revolution of the sick, hungry, and poor and bring us to victory. Victory. We are the best. We are the greatest. We will overcome. And what Jesus knows and is foretelling is, yes, there is victory. Yes, there is good news. Yes, there is life. But that is not going to come in the way that you expect it. It's going to come through this journey of suffering, through this journey of rejection, through this journey of death. And then 
The Son of Man must take on the sin of the world. The Son of Man must take on the suffering of the world and pay the price in order to save the world. Don't you understand that? And it doesn't look in the world's eyes like winning. It doesn't look like victory. In fact, you'll be rejected by the world. And let's get this straight. Jesus is not just selling this, hey, um, you know, suffering for suffering's sake. Let's create some sort of suffering. To follow me means to like invent suffering in your life and just do everything that leads to suffering. It's not a fabricated, manufactured suffering. Jesus suffered and rejected and died because there's evil in the world, because evil people tortured him, because evil people persecuted him. And ultimately, because systems of evil existed that was threatened by what Jesus represent and brought, those systems led to Jesus's execution. So let's get this right. We won't suffer as Christians because we made up the suffering, right? Because we tortured ourselves. But when we take on the qualities and characters and values and the love of Christ and follow the way of Christ, because there's evil in the world, because there's bad people in the world, because there's evil within the systems of power in the world, those, that evil will reject you. When you do the right thing, when you follow the Savior Jesus, you will be rejected. And what Jesus says at the end, he uses the word ashamed. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful generation, I will be ashamed of you. And so basically what, what Jesus is saying is, you can get with this, my crew, my entourage, my peeps, or you can get with this. You can choose into this, the evil generation, right? If you choose me, you will be ashamed. You will live in shame from this, from this world, from this crew, and you'll be rejected and you'll suffer because this world won't love you. This world will feel threatened by you. But you'll have ultimate life in me. But if you choose this because you don't want to suffer, because you don't want to be rejected, because you don't want to be ashamed, then I will be ashamed of you. I think it's interesting that the word shame is used here. And I, you know, I, in pastoral counseling, I did some reading um, on shame versus guilt. And oftentimes, you know, um, in conversations with pastors or on, uh, on, in different situations, I've tried to argue for the positiveness, for the benefits of shame. Because most of the times in, in America and the Western world, we'll say shame is, not, shame is from Satan. Shame is from the devil. Shame is not good. But my, from what I've read from different people, um, Eastern theologians and Eastern uh, thinkers, 
they see the positiveness of a shame-based culture, right? Shame-based cultures are based on a group mentality, right? Whereas guilt, here in the West where we're more focused on the individual, it's about guilt, right? Here are the rules, I break the rules so I feel guilty. Personally, I feel guilty so I won't break the rules. In shame, it's more, I'm a part of this collective, I'm a part of the community, and when I do something wrong, I'm rejected, I'm put on the outside of the community. And the shame is that. It's the fear of being outside of the community. But it can be positive because we will do what is good and what is right in order to be whole with community. So basically shame-based cultures like Asian cultures, for instance, what I, what I came up in, is basically the, you know, what drives or motivates us is to be in harmony, right? To be in harmony with community, to be not outside of the family, outside of the group, but to be inside. So when Jesus uses shame, he's not talking about a guilt, right? He's not saying, oh, you break this rule, you'll be guilty and you have to pay the price. He's saying, if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Which means, basically, when we make choices in life, we make choices to roll with this group and, or this system or to roll with this group or with this system. And Jesus is saying, you can choose to roll with the ethos, the culture, right? The spirit, of the, the spirit of the times. You can roll with that or you can roll with, in my kingdom, in my family, with me. And you can't ride the fence. Because actually, this family, what this family is about, is completely opposite of what, what this family is about. In fact, they're at enmity with one another. And we know this is true, right? Because of who Jesus was and his commitment to bringing good news to the poor and to the hurting and the lost, to bring love and humility, because of his commitment to life, he died. Because the world, this side, couldn't deal with it. It threatens us, right? We need to get rid of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, you can't ride the fence or you can't be on that side and be about me. You have to be in and be about what I'm about. But here's the thing, if you are about what I'm about, if you have the same heart as I have, if you follow my ways, you will inevitably be rejected. You will inevitably suffer. You will take up your cross. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, then choose me and what I'm about. That's basically what he's saying. To be a disciple of Christ, there's cost. Yes, there's cost because the things that Jesus are about are counter to what the world of sin is about. Winning looks different. Winning here 
means losing yourself to gain life. Winning here means dominating others to be on top. Does that make sense? And so we need to be about the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross, right? The way of suffering, not because we're manufacturing it, but because that's the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus comes in confrontation of the way of the world. And so I heard it said this way, if you do not experience persecution or suffering because of your faith and belief in Jesus Christ, you should count that as because of the grace of God, because God's graciousness to you. Because ultimately, in one way or another, when we follow Jesus, we will experience rejection. We will experience suffering because the world takes a bite out of Jesus and the Jesus way and it's bitter and it spits it out and it throws it on the ground and spits on it and stomps on it. Don't sell out is what Jesus is saying. Peter, I rebuke you. Get behind me because to say that I can never suffer or I won't ever go through this. I must go through this for the sake of the world. But remember this, that in Easter, in Lent, we focus on suffering. Jesus says here, and we focus on rejection and fasting and repentance. But the end of the story, the story doesn't end there. The story ends with the empty tomb new life, good news in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Victory, ultimate victory. And it's because of Jesus's commitment to new life and, and for people to be lifted up, for those who are unseen to be seen, for the blind to see again, for the lame to walk, because of Jesus's commitment to the salvation of the world, that's why he suffered. Let us be committed to the Jesus way, but also hold on to that commitment to life, to hope that in the end, we have new life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice and your commitment to confront evil, your commitment to go against the powers, to, to speak against truth to power, so much so, and to care about the weak, the poor, the hungry, the lost, and to walk humbly in mercy and justice, so much so that the world just could not, you know, it was an ache in their side. The world had to get rid of you. Thank you for your sacrifice and call us into courage. Give us courage as we continue to follow you 
um, that when the world offers us comfort or belonging or safety that is false, that we could say, we can deny ourselves and take up our cross for, for the future hope of victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.